thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up on you into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and on your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, his heart, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, why frogs? Well, many commentators will tell you that uh, God is mocking the gods of Egypt one by one. Uh, and so they've tried to link each plague to a particular god that is being mocked of the Egyptian gods. I'm not persuaded of that. Um, now, in chapter 12, verse 12, we'll read these words. It's, it's, it's dealing with the, the death of the firstborn, the final plague, he says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It's because of that verse that people want to go back and assign a God to each plague. But this is at the end. And in this one plague, all the gods of Egypt will be judged. So I don't see in that verse an indication that that's what I'm supposed to do. Rather, I think the point of our passage is clear enough in Pharaoh's obstinate refusal to let Israel go and, uh, and in God's power to compel him to. So God issues the directive under threat, let my people go or frogs are going to plague you, and Pharaoh must have refused. We're not given every interaction, but apparently he refused because uh, the next thing we see is God telling Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out his staff. And more and more as we go through the plagues, Moses is going to step to the foreground, Aaron's going to step to the background a little bit, but um, that may be because it's just kind of tedious for the narrator to constantly say, the Lord said to Moses to say to Aaron to do such and such, you know? So 
It's early on, and the point has just been made that Moses is to Aaron as God is to the prophet, and so the narrator does speak that way for a bit here. Um, and Aaron does it. He stretches out his staff, and the frogs are everywhere. Uh, the, the severity was predicted in verses 3 and 4. They shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and, and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Now, this is the first time that the plagues have actually really touched Pharaoh. Um, the Nile to blood thing, scary maybe, and a nuisance for sure, but not really a big deal. Uh, the last verse of chapter 7 told us that it, it's been a week since, uh, since that started. And now the frogs, again, not dangerous. Frogs don't, you know, I don't know of any venomous frogs. Maybe there are, but that's not the idea. Is, is there an irritant? Can you imagine how gross this would have been? Um, when I was on, on an archaeological dig in Israel, I, we had lunch on the side of the tell every day, and there were so many flies. It was truly impossible to eat your lunch and not get a fly in your mouth. That is just nasty. Well, frogs in your bed and in your bowls where you're making your bread? I mean, that's yuck, right? At the end of our chapter now, the Lord is going to make a distinction between his people and, and Israel, uh, between the land of Goshen where his people live and the rest of Egypt. But for now, notice that God's people are suffering right alongside the Egyptians. They've got the frogs in Goshen too. Well, it definitely had an effect on Pharaoh. The, the magicians, um, they'd reproduced the miracle, so Pharaoh didn't, he didn't yet see a God that he needed, nor did he see a God that he needed to fear. Uh, nevertheless, he does acknowledge that this is a plague that's a, a real nuisance, and he asks Moses and Aaron to plead for its removal. Uh, and he even promises to let the people go make their sacrifice. Sounds good, right? course, we know better. Again and again, Pharaoh is going to either lie or renege on his promises. And, and yet, notice how slow God is to crush him in his rebellion. He's warned with increasing severity and suffering, but, you know, as the Proverbs tell us, he who is often reproved and yet sti stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Well, now look at verse 9. Moses gives Pharaoh the privilege of naming the time. The Hebrew is kind of weird here. It's like, exalt yourself over me to name the time. Um, why does he do that? Why does he let Pharaoh name the time? We're told in verse 10, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Remember, Pharaoh sneered at the Lord. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to obey the Lord. Well, Pharaoh needs to understand with whom he's contending. So Pharaoh chooses tomorrow, and uh, Moses asks, and God grants the request. Now, <laughs> Moses said that the frogs would go away, and they did in a manner of speaking, but the Egyptians still had to clean them up, and, uh, and the, the reek of death was left behind as they piled them up. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So he's not afraid of the Lord yet. Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his staff with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, who knows what kind of what kind of gnats these were, what species of gnats. If you've ever been to Chincoteague or Assateague or, or Florida, they have these noceums. If there was a plague of those, I think it would drive me insane. Uh, but we don't even know if these were biting gnats. We just don't know. Uh, what we are told about them is that the, the magicians couldn't copy this one. Um, and, and they seem to recognize that it, it's an altogether different power than what they were dealing with. And so they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And now we see the increasing stubbornness of Pharaoh, right? So verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out of the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to get your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings that we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? No, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let Pharaoh not cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, again, we don't know what kind of bugs these were. Um, they may have been lice. They may have been mosquitoes. They may have been flies. Uh, but this time, Goshen is spared. Have you ever wondered 
I, mean, I have, every time I read the Bible. I've wondered, why now? Like, what about the other plagues? Why, why are they spared now? And why couldn't they have gotten out of the frogs? We're not told. The, uh, the New Testament, though, makes it plain that our sufferings, as we are united with Christ, are included in his suffering. Paul goes so far as to say that he, he longs to fill up in his flesh what remains of Christ's afflictions. And so, not to go too far afield here, um, but I think the answer that Job is given at the end of the book, admittedly in hints, um, is that God is at work to destroy our enemy, and Job's suffering is a part of that. At any rate, Israel is spared this plague, and we're told why. Verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Also, Pharaoh uh, was given the privilege of naming the time for the frogs to be removed. Well, this time it's the Lord who names the time for the onset of this plague. So the Pharaoh knows it's coming, and he knows when it's coming, but there's nothing he can do about it. And so with the gnats and the flies and the stench, he's finally broke, brought to a breaking point, but not really. He wants relief from the consequences of his sin, but he's not really to, ready to let go of his sin. He's willing to make concessions. He's willing to compromise, um, but he's not willing to repent. He's not willing to let Israel go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship the Lord. He says, go, go sacrifice, but do it here. Now, I don't know what to make of Moses' excuse here any more than I know what to make of the three-day request itself, because what they were really wanting was freedom, right? Uh, whether the Israelites would be in danger doing this in the land isn't really the point. Um, it, the point is that we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh again tries to negotiate a compromise. Uh, what he says is essentially go ahead, only he throws a caution in, only don't go very far. Well, I don't know what that even means because it's a three-day journey. The distance is described. But even with that caveat, Moses takes this as a yes. This is a go-ahead. So he says, behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord, only don't cheat again and refuse to let Israel go. So what should we glean from this passage this morning? I think, the, uh, I think we should certainly see the deceitfulness of sin and pride, for one thing. Pharaoh is the enemy in our passage, right? But you have a number of enemies that the Scriptures describe. Uh, your own flesh is like Pharaoh here. Uh, you see how Pharaoh sort of, he loses his mind in all of this. He's no longer acting rationally or even in his own best interest. Even his own magicians are telling him he's up against something greater than himself. He's up against divine power. Even he, he his wife, his children, they are, they're suffering more and more discomfort and trouble, all because of this 
just obstinate refusal, seemingly arbitrary refusal. Why won't you give the slaves a holiday? Now, we know that the goal was bigger than a festival in the wilderness, but, but I think we're supposed to see just how arbitrary and ridiculous his refusal is in that it's just a request for a holiday. Well, our flesh is just like that. We stick to stick stubbornly to stupid decisions that we've made. We tend to form deep, unexamined bonds with our besetting sins. We don't say them. They're unspoken. But they're deep attachments that don't let reason penetrate and loosen. You know, it's obvious when you see a, a troubled addict that they're doing that, but we all do it. And, and the, the world is like this too. That's another enemy that you face. Stubbornly attached to fantasies of their own making, all to preserve their own autonomy. So, so there's a lot that we can learn about our enemies in this passage. Um, and so in so doing, we can learn a lot about our, our own flesh, the devil, the world. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. But, but I think that the real takeaway from, for us from, a passage, from this passage is the sovereign power of our Lord. He's sovereign to judge and he's sovereign to save. He makes the distinction between Goshen and the rest of Egypt. He makes the distinction between his people and the world. It's his doing. It's for his glory. Now that's humbling, but in the most delightful and freeing way. And though he does call us to suffer at times, and other times he shields us from the suffering, but he is powerful to deliver us. And he has. He, he lived for us. He died for us. He's risen from the dead and ascended on high. And, and through the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to every one of his children, he enables us to dine with him, even now as we anticipate his return. You know, even as the Israelites waited, enduring some plagues, as they waited for deliverance, or even as the Israelites waited in the wilderness until the, the cloud would move, that they might move on. Even as the Israelites waited for many, many years for the coming of the Messiah, the people of God have always been in a place of waiting. And so now it is we wait. Now we're waiting for him to come back, but he's still waiting and it still requires suffering. And it still requires us to trust and obey. There is no other way. And as we wait, the Lord extends to us a regular reminder. A reminder that we are welcome at his table. That our sins have been dealt with completely. And that we are clothed in the righteousness that Jesus provides perfect righteousness, his righteousness. He who washes our feet invites us to dine and then serves us with himself. And he serves us 
He serves himself to us under these symbols, the bread representing his body, the, the blood of the grape, the juice of the wine representing his blood. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we come together to the table because Jesus Christ has made us one. That's why we dine together with him. The supper is about our union with Christ together. United, there's one loaf, one bread. We are one people. Suffers about uh, his faithfulness to forgive us and to receive us the peace that we have with him. It's an anticipation of the celebration of the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a lot of symbols that are, that are held out to us in this supper. But Christ is at peace with us is the principal message. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to, to crucify the sin with, that's continuing to plague our walk with Christ and to resist the devil and to follow him as those who bear his name ought to follow him. So if you've received Christ and are resting upon him alone for your salvation, as he's offered to you in the gospel, if you are baptized into the body of Christ and are a member of good standing in it, and if you're walking in repentance and faith and seeking to live, seeking that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, if, if you're doing that, this is for you. At the same, to strengthen you in your efforts. But at the same time, if, if you're not trusting in the Lord as your Savior or if you're not a member of a faithful Christian church, if you're not living penitently and seeking to walk in godliness, Scripture warns you dreadfully, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, you don't have to be free from sin. None of us are. That warning is not meant to keep those of tender conscience away. This is, this is to encourage us. This is to strengthen us because we he knows we're weak. We need that encouragement. So if you know the Lord, come and uh, receive medicine for poor, sick souls and find rest, refreshment, and nourishment. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you have set your love on us. Even before you founded the earth, you called us by name. And Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that in obedience to your Father and in love for us, you laid aside your divine dignity and humbled yourself to human frame. Thank you for giving us your righteousness and thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. Holy Spirit, seal to our conscience this is the faith that we enjoy. Use these elements to point us all once again to the peace that we have with you, as well as to the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called out of us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father, we praise you for the wonder of your salvation. We see in it your power, your wisdom, your goodness, your mercy. And Father, we confess that we can't stand before you or enjoy your heavenly feast on our own merits. We can't come bringing nothing in our hands, Lord, but we lean wholly on Jesus Christ, our Savior, his finished work, his continuing intercession. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might walk faithfully with you and allow us to feed upon Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for us, so that being strengthened by grace, we might live in him and for him. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples.